Hello, everyone. Welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Darking Jung land by me, Leah Miller. He, him, his, a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. I'm very excited today. Joining me from the closet is Rachel Ward, uh, surrounded by clothes and shoes and a, and a very nice new microphone and stand. Uh, Rachel, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Thank you so much. And I love all the implications and euphemisms <laughs> of joining you, joining from the closet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot of, a lot of uh, subtext and, 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 and complexity to unfold as we go along. Um, but no, I'm very, very glad that you've joined us today. For those who don't know, Rachel is a public theologian and a uh, LGBTQ plus activist currently pursuing their Master of Divinity and Master of Arts in Practical Theology at Columbia Theological Seminary. Uh, They are the co-founder of Bible Query, Q-U-E-E-R-Y, in case you want to search that, a collective focused on offering one-to-one and group facilitation for queer people of faith. Rachel deeply believes in the healing nature of narratives and lives within the liminal space between the academy, the church, and the public square. Rachel lives in Atlanta with their wife, Chelsea, and two fur babies, Jack and Francis. Uh, a, a, a big day to be living, or a big week to be living in Atlanta in the, in the US. USA. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. How are you going? How are you? How are you feeling after the you know uh, yesterday's uh, festivities oh. and, and, and and peaceful transfer of power? Thankfully. Oh God, yes. <laughs> Thank God. Um, it's really interesting. I'm so curious to hear what the experience is like from other people's perspective outside of the United States. But here, you know, I live in Georgia, Atlanta's um, kind of the hub, the capital really um, for, for Georgia. And, you know, I live in DeKalb County, which is one of the counties that really, you know, pull, pulled us through um, <laughs> to, to turn the state blue or really and truly just to turn the state more into a loving place, at least in our votes. Um, so we've been in the news for a hot minute until, you know, the terrible thing that happened at the Capitol, Mm. um, two weeks ago, which is wild. But I mean, I, I think the consensus between, uh, my friends and I who hung out via Zoom last night is just like, uh, like deep sigh of like relief and also like, okay, like it's not all over with like this historical, um, hatred um and white supremacist value is real and is a part of the american fabric but like now we have a president and also like we have a vice president a madam vice president so it's just like i think a collective like oh we can like breathe for the first time in a new way in four years um especially as um a queer person i mean joe biden and uh vice president harris like in the first day made several executive orders. And one of those um, was pretty much the strongest, strongest voice in favor of LGBTQ LGBT plus people in the United States ever from a president, as far as um, an executive order um, revolving around discrimination in the workplace and onwards in healthcare. And uh, they're like all things that sprawl, like you can't do that. So um, it's a good day to be um, still alive. Um, it's a promising day. Um, it's, it's now enjoyable and fun to see what the president is doing. Um, and instead of uh, cowering in fear to open up my New York Times app. So, yeah, um, like possibility is yeah. more tangible. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah. great. I, I, what it what is it what does it feel like in the other <laughs> realms of the world? I'm curious. Yeah, it's it's honestly very like one po- uh, thing someone pointed out was just like, how funny inaugurations are, like the way they're done in the US compared to like particularly in Australia, um, where it, it's just we just don't even have it. It's like someone wins, um, they go you know have a meeting with you know who the governor general basically signed it over and then it just go, we, it just continues on. Um, we don't have the big, you know, celebration with, you know, poetry and fireworks and songs and, and elaborate um, <laughs> public settings with hundreds of thousands. Well, not yesterday, but well, in the past, yeah, hundreds yeah, of thousands yeah. of people showing up. Um, so that's always funny, but like, yeah, there's definitely obviously a, a, a relief, um, you know, while acknowledging lots of work to still be done and, you know, but just, yeah, just, I mean, especially for a while they're watching, you know, and just being so uncertain of what was going to happen in that space between the election and the inauguration and, and, and what exactly that could lead to, um, you know, because so much of the world is, you know, there's no, America can't be isolated from the world and we can't be isolated from America in any way. So, you know, right. we, we do have to like, you know, what happens there affect, impacts us even though we're in a totally different hemisphere. Um, and so so, yeah. the, so there's definitely an onlooking and a hope um, and, yeah, and so it's definitely been a relief, and 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 but I think also hopefully what people are realizing is here is sometimes we have this because America can be louder um, and more gaudy sometimes in in some of its stuff. We we kind of think that a lot of the problems are America's problems, but just because maybe we're politer and and more subtle, like you know, white supremacy and um, transphobia collective. and stuff like that, is all is 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 an Australian problem to its core um, and. and a, you know, other places would experience that too. So um, I think hopefully what we're seeing is, you know, um, and what others will probably be realising is, you know, we can't just think of it all as this Trump thing that's now gone, but these are deep undercurrents in our society or, or, you know, not even undercurrents, currents in our society that that need to be addressed and dealt with. Um, But hopefully maybe the fact that it was so brought to the surface means those conversations need to rise up as well. Uh, And so... Um, yeah, so my hope is that people, you know, Australians don't go thinking like, okay, well now that that's dealt with in America, we don't have to look at ourselves or America <laughs> or anything. We can just go on to life as it no, was. But, no. uh, but it definitely, it definitely does feel like at least like the a, a, a chaotic energy has kind of dissipated a little bit. That that we were all kind of yeah, um, yeah. suffering under has kind of been addressed. Yeah, um, not not so afraid. Mm depending on who you are and where you are and where you're going. Yeah. Um, I think there is definitely more marginalized communities that could be more afraid. I thankfully live in a more liberal environment, but if I move, if I drive an hour down, you know, to a rural environment, then I'm a little bit less safe, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I also think that like, you kind of have to hold the, these two parallels of truth. Um, mm-hmm. History teaches us things, you know, when Hitler lost the first, when the first world war was lost in, in Germany, um, we blamed it on a certain group of people. And then we were in another war and then lots and lots and lots of more people died. Um, Trump isn't gone. He's just not in, in an elected position. So the United States has four years from a government position to, to try to make truth the most prevalent thing, which is what I think the Biden-Harris administration is doing. But um, from a very like nerdy historical, like very much a side and a part of me brain. I'm like, eh, I don't want to just fall <laughs> into the pits of despair, but like we have four years <laughs> mm, mm, to try mm. to make some real change. And if not, 
um, someone from that vein of that party will run again. Um, And if we aren't, I know that unity is such a like, it has a lot of like uh, um, unuseful energy um, Mm. embodied in it. But if we don't unify in our efforts to be honest about how we have manipulated and harmed marginalized communities and torn people apart, then I think we will be in trouble um, when we come back around again in four years. So it's like, as an organ, like as a, like I'm so many things and as an organizer of some degree, like I'm like, all right, cool. Like we can celebrate and we can be ecstatic and happy, but we also have to like (laughs) keep, keep like pushing and doing the work too. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I think like, what maybe what was seen a bit in the last in this from my observations and I could be wrong, but like um, because it was just seemed so like I don't even know how you impact that top level. It's like so what can you do at the grassroots level? And clearly Georgia was a case in point of like well how do you oh get how do you in, how do you um, <laughs> help people be franchised to vote? And then what what a change that makes when you can deal with some of that suppression. And, and, you know, so the hope is that potentially this four year that focus on okay how do we address this the local. Um, you know, all the various bodies of government so that it trickles up um, is, yeah. is is something that I, yeah, I would be interested to see how that continues. It's the, it's the largest misconception um, in, I guess, U.S. government. Um, I was a journalist for about seven years before I fumbled into marketing. <laughs> and now where I am, I'm doing both marketing and being a seminarian and all the other things that are formulating. Um, but that was the biggest thing that just like, would gut punch me is people would not vote for city council elections mm-hmm. or for, um, Oh gosh, what are the other people? There's city council. Uh, and then there's like County elected officials. Mm-hmm. Um, and David Perdue who just lost, um, thank God, at least that's my opinion. Um, I interviewed him when he was running for a County seat position and the vote out, the voter turnout in that time frame was very low. If you don't pay attention to your local elections, those people end up, you know, riding the ladder and then and then mm. they are some version of of Trump or some version of like very conservative thinking that you didn't agree with, but you didn't mm. vote. Yeah. Um and voting is is so critical. But yeah, um so many, mm. so many black women, not just Stacey Abrams, like so many mm. black women made the difference in the change in Georgia, truly. Yeah, thank you for for sharing all that. And I think that's, <laughs> I think actually one thing I'm, we're going to talk about pastoral care a bunch today. And I think having this in the setting and in the background is going to be really helpful. Let's just get to it now. We'll get to some other stuff later. So okay. So you do a lot of pastoral care, uh, and that's a big passion of of your studies and your work. And and um, so maybe as a lead into this, you can talk a bit about you know Bible query and how some of this pastoral care is is happening um and 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 what how you're kind of working with that and how you're working with that through the podcast and other, other things but i guess you know so, so often pastoral care i think is, is so very like a lot of kind of this kind of mental health is very individualized and very about okay so what is going on inside that we can address and help work through um and sometimes to the expense of saying hey the reason i am feeling xyz is because of um, rising ethno-nationalist white supremacy violence, you know, is because of a global pandemic um, and is because of um, 
student loan debt is because of right these very true, you know, true, real external factors that everyone, or not everyone, lots of people are experiencing. And sometimes that is kind of, I guess, sometimes left to the side when we think about care and about how we help people. And so, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, any pastoral care that's been going on in the US over this last <laughs> X amount of months, years, you know, um, mm. is, is going to be not getting to the heart of so much if, if it if it's remains at kind of this very individualised internal level and not saying that, hey, yeah, there's very real reasons to be scared, anxious, worried, um, feeling, you know, whatever because of what's mm-hmm. going on here. And if we don't do anything to address how that is impacting you and our communities, then, you know, our, our, our ability to help bring people into flourishing and wholeness and healing is also severely limited. So I'm just curious about your thoughts of thinking about, you know, care offered in times such as these and, and yes, the pull between trying to address um, what's going on in people's lives. Yeah. Um, I would love to say that we're out of crisis, but we're not. Mm, mm. So this is, this is very much like disaster and crisis care, mm. um, which kind of strips us back to like, uh, the core genesis of needs. Um, and I would also say that you're not necessarily like off base with saying a lot of people. Um, for marginalized folks, what is happening in the world has been happening forever, mm. but it's the larger population of white folk and more privileged folk who are like, oh shit, this sucks. And I'm pardon my yeah, French, yeah. but I'm not no, allowed no, to do no, that here. No, yeah, yeah, no, no, it's all good. Um, it's all good. It's what the American would say. <laughs> um, but so there is a great like unveiling. Um, let's kind of look at it like a, like a mushroom cloud. Let's look at it really wide up and then we can kind of come back down. But there's this great unveiling um, of systemic racism and um, poverty and class um, differentiations and the way that different genders are treated. I mean, especially in the United States is what all I can speak to. I'm not briefed in international affairs and how people (laughs) function there, but I do know that we're human and that our messiness involves into all wherever we are. Um, And when I say messiness, I don't mean that as evil or negative. Um, I think of things as useful, unuseful. Um, And will always be training my brain to like reprogram good and evil, um, bad and good to useful, unuseful. Um, And invite people to interrogate why they use those words and how they make them feel. Um, That's Mm -hmm. a tangential sidebar. But (laughs) so you have this activation of denial or realization um, in the beginning of the pandemic. A lot of white people being like, oh my God, like there's so many black and brown people dying. What is happening? A lot of black and brown people saying, this has been happening forever. We've Mm -hmm. been screaming at you. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you have, this is like the larger atmosphere, death, dying, grief, which are all things that like, I really think about and write about a lot. You have systemic racism overarching. You have the white supremacist narrative of what Trump is doing, the lack of healthcare that's happening. Mm. Everyone is quarantined and isolated the way that the world tries to make us be in the first place. So it's just like a real recipe for like, let's go back to the Genesis beginning of like, what does care and need mean? Um, 
and in a like pastoral setting, um, I, so I have been serving at a church at a United, um, a UCC church, um, in state college, Pennsylvania. And clearly I told you I live in Georgia. So that means that I have been zooming, Mm. um, with this church and serving, um, as their spiritual director and educational coordinator with their youth and families. Um, and being in mentorship with uh, Reverend Jess Cast, who if you do not know who that is, go follow her um, and, and know her. Um, she's a beautiful example of, of human-centered, Christ-loving pastoral care. Um, but it's been all about like just how can we walk alongside our congregants who are grieving that they can't be in their physical space and how can we walk alongside congregants for this particular congregation that I've been serving in who are liberal and living amongst a rural environment who, you know, we're planning to vote for Trump and how do you walk in that space and love people well and be political, but not be political. The paradox mm-hmm. of serving in, in church space. So it's a lot of, um, doing art like I did art with the kids for the whole year for 2020 that I was with them Mm -hmm. August to December we did art with absolutely everything we did um we talked about the capital siege together um in like kid style detail um opened up and did a lot of feelings like right now uh, we have this really like incredible opportunity and a horrible situation um, to cultivate an understanding of what spiritual tangibility can mean for us. Um, I think when we're in person in church spaces, we can be not complacent, but rhythmic in a way that kind of dulls the senses. We go to church, we, we take communion, we sing the songs, but now we're not there. We're not in this like planned programmatic space and we desire God perhaps more than we ever have and we want to know how to commune um and so there's this like deep questioning within myself um and within the pastor I serve with and other pastors of like okay how do we cultivate um a space for us to ask those questions to doubt um what's going on um to create new rituals new rhythms um Ash, Ash Wednesday is coming up and that is a huge <laughs> um, part of any, any um, denomination or congregation who um, is centered in uh, sacraments and, and ritual and rite or are probably like really deeply grieving that they can't physically, you know, be touched with ash from dust to dust, like having to be creative about how to like take it all the way back to like the wilderness of the Old Testament, which is really truly the Hebrew Bible and sit with um, Moses and the Israelites in the desert and be like, okay, how did we do that then when we didn't have the things that we had? Um, and so I think we are re-embodying pastoral care as not just a central point that's located in the pastor, but a communal, like, responsibility a call that we received in genesis which was to tend to one another Mm. and we either do that right now or we die alone and and i know that's like very blunt and um realistic of the environment that we're in but but it's real Mm. 
mm-hmm. in humanness. I don't think that we die alone in our faith, in our spiritual environment, whoever you call God, whatever you call, you know, your spiritual center. But in humanness, like, we either show up for each other, um, we create community and we reweave fabric or maybe we actually finish the tapestry that we thought we had already finished or continue that work um or we're just going to continue to live and at least what western (laughs) evangelical society would want you to do which is remain separated from your emotions separated from uh, one another and asking about other people's feelings and being more like it's not in someone's business. It's being with someone's business. There's mm. like a pristine difference in that. Mm. Um, so that's like the larger perspective that I, that I'm thinking about right now is like, yeah. how, how can we invite um, people, communities from my perspective that I am um, in care with, um, not for in care mm. with, it's very important um, because I don't, I don't, I know that I have pastoral authority, but I am not the authority. Mm. Um, there are people who are pastors amongst me who are not ordained, you know, mm. like mm. we are, we are all given, um, given such Holy Spirit vibes. So um, how, like, how do we encourage someone to go deeper and more into the mystic deep to like figure out what their spiritual tangibility is? Because for a lot of us who are like raised cradle onward in church environments, We've just been told what that is. Mm. Um, Now, for queer people, (laughs) um, we have this hot take on having to figure that out for ourselves. Um, So um, we've been doing some of this work for a moment now. Mm. For a lot of of folks, this is new for you. This is new for you that you can't go to your church. This is new for you that you can't take communion. This is new for you that you can't go to funerals. This is new for you that you can't read scripture before the preacher preaches in a physical space. So like empathy abounds there. And also like a lot of the questions I've heard is like, well, what does that mean for like my relationship with God? Like, is that fractured? Is it different? Am I further away? I can't hear. Like it's this um, liminal space that we're moving in. And I really am encouraging people and thinking about how to sit with people to say, maybe this is the moment where the veil gets torn and you get to figure out alongside community, how God talks to you, how you commune with God, and then how you commune with other people. Um, And that's something that I think queer wisdom provides, at least Mm. through me with other Mm. people. I think that's really helpful. Thank you for that. I think we were, and it's interesting you were saying about how like, you know, in having to meet differently, um, we, we, you know, space can open up to actually, you know, have that kind of cross-pollination care, you know, that, that like care but amongst and between and with all of it rather than it being a kind of um, more like directed through the, the one pastoral figure. Um, mm-hmm. And we kind of talked um, in, in the last episode, um, we had a couple of, few guests on and, and Flora Tang and, and Keegan Asinski were both kind of talking about um, communities they've been forming and part of online and how because it was kind of a bit less structured in the way that the service kind of unfolded there was more time for this kind of conversation uh, sharing opening talking across um, rather than the kind of more this um, up and down kind of uh, directed um, space and so and, and I think that's something that we can definitely be learning I think hearing what you're saying there is that how do we provide that space 
um, how do churches foster and work together and then beyond churches um, to have this kind of caring for each other and then how do we learn from folks who have had to be doing that for a yeah. lot longer? We've been grieving for a year because of the pandemic mm. and we've been figuring out to adapt and to gather, okay, we're there. So now instead of just continually saying we're in this liminal space, which I'm going to say, I mean, I will say that, but like in our services, like we're in this liminal space and we mourn that we're here. Let's go further. We're in this liminal space. This is where we are. So what could that mean for our growth in our relationships with each other and our relationships with the divine? Um, and what things could we leave behind? What's no longer useful to us? What is useful to us? Um, I think there's this really um, beautiful opportunity for the things in the church that are harmful to die. And um, for the things that have been trying to like birth and spring to actually emerge for mm you know, eternity and overfold. So, um, I mean, and, and, you know, I've mentioned queer spaces before, but I mean, this is what we do. Like (laughs) queer people search high and low and under rocks to find any, (laughs) any aspect of community or, or, or thread of, um, brave environment. Um, I don't believe, um, in safe environments. I highly encourage and, and also this is like a language change and also um, uh, a, like who told me kind of thing. Who t- told me what safe means and who told me what safe feels like? I've, mm. Have I ever really felt safe? Um, all, any space um, can become dangerous, um, but not all spaces can be brave. Um, mm. That takes a, a commitment to um, so for example, in, in Bible query, when we did our first cohort, wildly, wildly did our first cohort, um, Aaron Green and I did it from August to December because we are wild. Uh, <laughs> and we, we, we did meet every two weeks, but then we were like, oh, maybe we should have community spaces. So we really met like every week, every Friday, August to December. Um, and we met with these 32 wonderful of all ages, all race, um, diverse de- denominational backgrounds, faith backgrounds from all over the world. Mm. Um, and the first day um, we talked about internalized homophobia. And then we talked about, you know, uh, who told you um, this? Anything we ever say is not the authority and in being. It's information and wisdom that we're offering to you. And then we talk about it. It's a very communal processing kind of environment. And we're always inviting our cohorts to like continually ask whenever they bump up against triggers or situations to like share what that is so we can like care for each other. There's no one point person. Aaron and I more participate as like facilitators um, and like dislodgement of things in the riverbank, but we're not the ones like, you know, paddling the canoe um everyone's doing that Mm. um but it's it's a brave space because we set it up that way Mm. um Mm. because we discussed in the beginning you know what are your like i i'm from an organizing background so we call it like a community garden um, but like, what are your things that you hope? What are you things that you want to speak up on? How are we going to treat each other here? Um, and this beautiful like intimacy that comes for that. 
Um, and I have several, 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 several examples of that being possible. Um, and in the vein of like working with the kids that I, that I work with, I have seen them do that too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think spiritual tangibility runs parallel with um, opening up, uh, ourselves up for like maybe for the first time for some of us, for some of us, mm. Um, mm. a development and an inquiry about what emotional intelligence means and could be. Um, because I think society, which I know I can't speak for all of society, but at least in westernized views, um, we kind of set a cap on emotional intelligence. We say, well, this is all you need to know. Mm-hmm. We're capable of so, so, so much more. No one can see me, so I'm saying that my hand was really low. <laughs> and then I went above the ceiling with what we're capable of. Um, because from a, a Christian religion, like spiritual perspective, like I'm spending my entire life um, in a cyclical movement and um, striving to be present and still and moving and running to discover the vastness and like mysterious nature of God. Mm. And I also believe deeply that that nature is instilled in me and of me in certain ways. So also I, I carry multitudes. So who can tell me that I don't and who tells us that we shouldn't explore? Um, Yeah. Mm. Thank you for that. It's interesting. So I was thinking about how you're talking about like queer spaces and queer wisdom and, and how that's, you know, what a lot of people are bumping into now is um, issues and questions and kind of the kind of communities that we need have been explored well for a long time. Um, and it was interesting. So before, just, just before the pandemic started, I began reading um, David France's How to Survive a Plague, um, which is a story of like um, activists and scientists um, taming AIDS in kind of it's mostly a New York story in, in, in that time. Brilliant book, but it was like I'd started reading it just because and then an actual pandemic plague Eerie. started. Eerie. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like the CDC and, and like Fauci are like ca- you know, characters quite you know, in, in, in his book, you know, people, you know, he's dealing with like what the hell is going on? Um so that was very but like, you know, something that comes through in that book is the communities that formed around those who were sick and dying, um, those who were being ignored and maligned, those who were, who were being abandoned, um, mm-hmm. and communities of all different kinds and, and different forms. And, and, and part of what you also realise in that book that you kind of keep, keep reminding yourself is how, like, almost everyone that you're following is, like, in their 20s or maybe early 30s. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's young people who are being forced to, like, you know, you know take on the mantle of, of, of so much of this work and care and things like that. But, but you truly see through it that the, the life and the, the bonds that were formed, you know, in the midst of all this terrifying death and unknownness. Um, and so that, that was just something that sparked when you were kind of talking about, you know, the, the, where this has already been happening and, and in other places too, obviously, and before, even before. Um, and so I guess one, you know, but, but that, so, and that made me kind of think about how your, your workers or in your kind of framing of um, a living death doula model for queer grief care, um, which I think fits kind of out of that. So I, I just want to, you know, throw, ask you a bit about that, about where that kind of idea started formulating for you, where you're trying to, exp- interested in exploring taking it, because I know it's also tied up in your 
um, studies and 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 work there and academic work. Um, so just a bit about yeah where that kind of so the you know those ideas that are tossed around for you at the beginning and and where you're hoping to take them. Mm, okay. <laughs> I successfully explained this a couple a week ago to someone else. So um, <laughs> the fun thing the fun thing about academic writing um, is that the the academy, which the academy is in reference to institutional as education, um, requires a certain um, style of writing uh, hmm. that isn't so humanized um, and accessible. So regurgitating it. Um, has been interesting in trying to do that in conversation. <laughs> um, that, so I think the best place to start would be to explain that um, living death is something that I have coined. Um, it isn't a word that existed before me. Um, and it is, it, became into existence um, through a death, dying, and grief course that I took last spring, um, which, unbeknownst to any of us, became the <laughs> pandemic. So it was quite interesting to be in a death, dying, and grief course in the beginning of a pandemic um, when people were dying um, every day and in new ways with unexplainable reasons. Mm. Um, and our assignment in that class, uh, our final assignment, was to create... Um, literally the professor that, that we have for that class is also my advisor and, and I love her and the freedom that she gives us in our, um, in our writing and our research, but mm. was to conceptualize some kind of way to bring grief, um, care and conversation to the public square. Mm -hmm. Um, and I decided that it would just be really fun <laughs> Uh, to write a proposal for the American Academy of Religion, um, not as a joke, but as like practice, because at that point, because things change very quickly, at that point, uh, this is just in the spring, um, I was curious in doctoral work. Um, I still have two more years to go, because as you heard, I'm also wild and getting two master degrees at one time, which I just feel like they should give you a PhD after that. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's a sidebar. Uh, I just wanted to practice that higher level yeah. of academic writing, and I did, and I got in, which is wild it's a 10% acceptance rate and most mm. people who get in are PhD students or like senior level professors mm. so that was an incredible 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 thing um and so it started with a core question about the biblical case for inclusion which is um to define um basically the biblical case for why we should be affirming mm. or why we should like totally love queer people like uh without conditions because we need a case for that mm. um and so let me name so grateful so appreciative for the work theologians have done on that um so much work has gone into that so much work has gone into making that accessible in different languages mm -hmm. across you know like i'm not saying that this is not a useful thing the question though um i work i listen i receive countless DMs um, mm. from queer people who are just coming out to queer people who are very old. Why is this still not enough? Mm. Um, mm. And even in my own like 
myself when people ask me about, you know, well, how did you reclaim and reform? And, and at this point, I'm a very like blunt, like maybe slightly cynical, salted person of like, mm, yeah, no, it wasn't the biblical case. Um, it's, it's 100% um, not enough. Um, it's a solely cognitive offering. Um, and pastoral care is not cognitive. It's should, I think, um, and hopefully be an embodied approach to being with someone and alongside someone, which is what doulas do. See, I'm trying to get back in. It's happening. Beautiful. Um, this is magic. <laughs> this is poetry in motion, folks. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's very hard to do when you're taking <laughs> research and compiling. Yeah, but oh, yeah. doulas do this. Um, yes. You, so, um, and you might have birth doulas or midwiferies mm. who are coming and helping someone have a more natural birth and experience alongside nurses or doctors. Um, you have doulas that help birth reenter, and then you have what is called um, a death doula or um, an end of life caregiver or a death midwifery. Different traditions use different um, names. Mm. And so I have to name them all because I don't want people to think I didn't think about all that. So um, I was deeply interested in what death doulas do with folks who are dying, um, narrative oriented wise, um, mm. because queer people are still dying physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And the biblical case isn't enough to stop that. Um, what are death doulas doing with their narrative that's helping people move through um, their grief and their dying process? Um, so living death, um, is essentially core fractures that happen to queer people of faith, not just Christianity, any faith, um, to their personhood. Um, when you're denied the ability to go to church, when your family cuts you off, when your friend cuts you off, when someone questions your gender, your appearance, all these things that may seem really small to the outside world are traumatically massive for the internal core structure of a person. Um, and it's immensely damaging. And if unleft, unmoved, that grief that happens from these traumatic experiences kind of encapsulate the experiences and leave them and like just buried in our bodies, buried in our minds, buried in our spirit. Mm. And so they only reoccur. Um, so that's living death. Mm. Now I will say that I write, speak, preach, and think through my lived experience as a queer person. So yes, this research is written for queer people, but living death happens to all people, um, just point blank. That, mm. that This happens to all people. Very much believe that in conversation with people, and I explain it to them, they're like, oh, yeah, I'll definitely have that happening. Yeah, uh, yeah. But the the like cyclical nature of, of living death um, like what grief encapsulates for queer people um, is disassociation, uh, minimization, um, minimizing of self, like making yourself smaller, uh, mm. minimizing needs. Disassociation just means that you're like, this very terrible thing happened. This thing re-triggered me about this very terrible thing, which, oh, hello, by the way, the biblical case can do that for us. I'm going to go over here and not actually absorb this cognitive information because I'm trying to figure out in my mind why this is happening. Mm. Minimization, make yourself smaller, and then persistent themes, which for a queer person can be, God doesn't love me, I'm going to hell, 
I'm an abomination, just on repeat, mm. no matter mm. if you've had the biblical case or not, I have data for this. People still think like people are still coming with like, this still rings in my eardrums. Um, and uh, spiritual rationing, which is just like a belief, like an inherited belief that as queer people, we only deserve the breadcrumbs that that's actually flourishing, which is not, it's, it's complete rationing of mm. our spiritual complexity and vastness of how we can experience God, ourselves and other people. Um, and so living death doula, which is what um, I have kind of cultivated, created um, as someone who walks with that queer person through these, um, these kind of cyclical motions that, harbors the narratives and hopefully what happens is that grief kind of gets a even if it's like um a tiny microscopic pinhole mm. it's at least getting broken through and you can mm. keep working through um and so i actually did this with uh with one person over the span of two days um and used this model and gave them the narrative that they truthfully, honestly told. Um, and they're now in therapy because as pastoral caregivers, we're not therapists. We're not. Um, that's also very, but we are not. No, not. Uh, we should be in partnership with um, therapeutic practices and caregivers um, because we are caregivers of the spiritual soul. We are not caregivers of um, psychology. We're just mm. not. We can be informed by that. Um, but we aren't, we aren't trained in that. So there is a distinction, but not a isolation um, in that. So yeah, like the pillar, the pillars of this model are first and foremost to have no expectation um, for a lot of queer people in, and other people too. If you want to think about yourself in this, um, you might have been promised that there was going to be an internal life situation at the end of this conversation, that there was going to be some massive change that was going to take place. And mm -hmm. then maybe if it didn't happen, you just thought you were bad. But the reality is, is like, we can't promise anything to anyone and we shouldn't. Um, so the first thing out the gate is we're going to sit here. We're going to talk about your story. I'm going to ask you some questions. We're going to walk through it together. I'm going to listen to you, but I need you to know, that there's no expectation of what's going to happen here. That I can't promise you that I'm, that healing is coming, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to hold space with you. Um, and the second um, kind of directive in this is to cultivate so much space, so much space. Like if you think you've paused for five minutes, you could pause for like seven or eight um, to allow time for things to permeate, for things to come through, um, and to ask like searing questions. Um, Howard Thurman is like just central to um, the way that I think, write, and think of pastoral care. Um, and Howard Thurman, uh, who was before Martin Luther King, is the book that Martin Luther King had in, in his um, briefcase when he died. So Howard Thurman is like OG. Um, in the realm of pastoral care and a liberation and mystic type of theology. Mm. Um, and Howard Thurman had this, like, its concept is really not right, but a concept um, of 
the sound of the genuine. Like each person has a genuine self within them and no other person can tell a person what that is. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Thurman would paint this incredible journey that you'd have to go on, which sounds like your lifetime, which probably is accurate of you'd be traveling in like a rowboat, like several different Island locations. And finally you've gotten to the Island and you go inside this building and there's an angel holding this sword that's on fire. And that is your genuine self. And then you get it. And then, you know, <laughs> but like our Thurman would just like write incredibly visionistic things. But you know, he, he, we talk about like anybody who's like puppet controlling you mm. um, is taking that away from you. And he was saying, you know, our role isn't to tell people what to do or tell people how to do it, but to ask searing enough questions that it gives mm. them space and room for them to get to their genuine self. Mm. Because we in our trauma status have a billion different voices telling us what to do and how to feel. And we have to kind of sort through that. It can be very lonely and hard and traumatic to sort through those voices by yourself. And so a living death doula is going to do that with you. Um, and the, th- the third directive for in the queer vein um, is that we know death more than a lot of people do. Um, it, it, you know, black and brown people know death in a way that queer people, if I'm a white queer person, will not know. But queer people know death within this community in a way that like cis straight people do not know and accessing this knowing as an empowerment tool um, that Mm. we can break through um, our grief. So that is the the explanation of research in the best way I could possibly offer it. It's so great. It's so great, Rachel. Thank you so much. Like, one thing that came to mind was because you, you brought up the image earlier of going and sitting with Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness and, and figuring out so what did you do when it was all stripped away. Uh, and, and, and so much of that like feels like what you've been talking about there feels like, you know, in some ways the journey through the wilderness, like through numbers, like numbers, I think is such a fascinating book and that you start mm-hmm. with a, you start with a census and then later on you have another census and there's not a single name retained. Like, you know, in that span between two censuses, every, and a generation of being buried in the wilderness and, and, and I want to, you know, allegorically reading that of like, what, what are those things that, as you say, you have to let die, you have to let go of because they're not useful anymore. Um, mm-hmm. What are the things that you bury in the wilderness as you walk forward, not necessarily knowing what's coming or when it's coming or what it's going to look like, but you know something's there. Um, and on the way, you're sustained not by rations, right, but by as much food as you can gather for that day provided by God who does not let the people fail. Like, so, you know, there's, you know, some, it was just it was interesting that the way that image kind of struck me of uh, you know coming back to that and, and walking with the people and and at the same time fighting those voices which are saying maybe we were better off in Egypt right maybe we were you know right. yeah it was terrible but at least it was a consistent terribleness like you know at least we knew what it was um, and 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 being that voice that speaks out and I think that's such a beautiful model you've outlined and again one that doesn't need. Um, the magic hands of ordination waved over someone's head for them to be able to do it, but is able to be done no, yeah, in, I, with and through the community. I deeply believe and did write in the larger paper, which isn't published yet, um, that we're all living death doulas, mm-hmm. um, that it isn't a sole responsibility of a pastor, but um, that it's a responsibility of the community. Um, so, yeah, mm. which is just like, 
what I believe in. Um, mm. I mean, we we collectively um, weave love, um, and we, if we're open enough, can be reflections of that to each other. Mm. Thank you. And, and the other thing that I thought was was important is that is that asking of those searing questions. Um, is that like you know questions that help cut through. Um, and again, I think the importance of that, if, if extrapolating that out, the import, you know, to, to other communities, the important of that in pastoral care, where sometimes we kind of think of the, the goal of pastoral care is at the end that people feel good about themselves. Right. Um, and there are people, <laughs> you know, in, in communities that have historically, um, you know, being privileged and oppressive and are currently, not just historically, privileged and oppressive, you know, being asked those searing questions about what do you need to let go of um, and it might not be a voice that tells you you're nothing. It might be a voice that tells you you're everything. But but these searing questions need to be asked so that, you know, are you ready to renounce these things that are causing death and destruction that are isolating you, um, you know, from from those who, who whose, you know, neck is under your boot. So so I think that's a really a, a helpful piece there as well that I, I really appreciate. So... Yeah, it's oh, really... Dang- I just i am feeling... <laughs> it's really dangerous to, um, I mean, and I know that some people are taught this in, in different seminaries or in your church spaces, but um, dangerous to prescribe a fix. Um, we, I don't think that we as, as, as pastors, um, as um, spiritual beings with each other are here to fix each other. Um, mm. Um, we're here to stand with each other. Um, mm. And when it's so dangerous because when we as a pastor says, I'm going to fix you, whether mm. that's I'm going to fix you of being gay or I'm going to fix you of this um, alcoholism that you have, or I'm going to fix you. If you just pray, like mm. it's a complete separation from um, the God I know versus the God that um, an empire like uh, Christian supremacy knows. Mm. Um, it's a, it's a different world. Um, and so it's a dangerous line, um, and a hard line because the Lord knows that you can meet people who you do really humanly like want to fix a situation for them and you want to make them feel good. And the, the really, uh, beautiful and also painful and hard task of being, um, a pastor of any shape, fashion, um, is to separate your need and desire personally from just being present. It's just about being present. Um, And that like trusting that God and spirit are going to take care of the rest, Mm. which is hard. Like Mm. I say that as that is hard, Mm. but that's loving. Yeah. 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 I I work in an area with a lot of, um, high need, high material need. Uh, you know, we, we got folks coming through who just don't have housing or needing something to come through and, um, you know, are battling with government bodies, you know, various types to try, you know, you know, to try to get their, get something going, get housing, get support, get um, the payments they need. And, you know, yeah, it can, it, it's, there are times you just like, you really just want to offer a word of, you know, this will, this will work out. Like that will come through, like, Mm-hmm. It's like, but I know what these bureaucracies are like. That, that mm-hmm. I can't make that promise. Um, all I can do is exactly as you say, be present, and then offer like, okay, what can we do together? Like, can mm-hmm. you know, 
making phone calls, writing letters, you know, going, you know, driving someone somewhere. Like, you know, what are those things I can do? But I can't, yeah, in good conscience, make this promise that this is going to work. But being present in that is 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 better. Yeah. Um, yeah. And 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 then and then forming those relationships and knowing how to help folks in those practical ways, but just in that caring role, because as you say, like, and because just from years of traditional ways of thinking of pastoral care, it's in that moment, the voice of the carer and the voice of God get, for, for a lot of people get very intermingled and meshed and confused. Yes. Yeah. And so if the promises <laughs> you're making are promises God's making, and that's And that's, dangerous. that's, that's hurtful yeah. to yeah. someone's, um, spiritual understanding and relationship to God and also like this family-esque connectivity that they might make with you. And, mm, you know, mm. that I mean, we could have a whole nother conversation about family enmeshment. Yeah. Um, but yes, we are, we are kin, but I am not your mom and I'm not your dad and not your sister or your brother. And I know that we speak that way in certain churches, but it's, dangerous because as human human people and i and i'm saying that from this is my opinion um it's it's a language choice um a language choice if you're going to make um i think there needs to be explanation for what the expectation and the meaning of that is because for human people if we hear oh your sister and brother and you're connected with god too if that person missteps in one way the wrath of all anger is like different. It's just different. It's an emotional, spiritual, like binding that is so different. Um, and I'm discovering more and more as I lean into like my own call, like this is a very difficult balance to, um, to hold with people. Yeah. Rachel, thank you for this conversation. Your, your thoughtfulness and passion and, and just abundant care is shining through, and I really appreciate it. How can people connect with what you're doing, with uh, Bible Query, with um, your own, your, your writing, your just shout it all out, let people know how they're going to connect. <laughs> I mean, there'll be links in the bio, obviously, but, uh, but yeah, what, how do, what's going on? What do you want to direct people's attention to now? Yeah, so you can follow me at Queer and Faith queer in faith just to slow it down because i don't know if my southern accent's coming through right now but queer in faith um for instagram and twitter and that's also my site is queerinfaith.com um you can read all of my blogs and writing and the research i talked about and you can also find my podcast um how to be human a podcast about belief and healing is hosted on there um i will have season three of that podcast um starting to roll out um, in the latter end of February. So you can look for that for Bible query, um, that the cohort is going to roll out in April. So you have time to inquire if you want to be a part of that. It'll be a four week, um, every Wednesday, um, cohort situation. Don't worry if you're in a different, different place in the U S we send out a poll and try to find the best time that works for everybody. Um, and all the goodies that come along with that, but go to biblequery.com. You can also follow Bible query on Instagram at Bible query. And the last thing I will say before I stop saying all things, um, uh, we currently host a Instagram live show Mm. on Fridays at 4 PM Eastern standard time. It's an hour-long show where Aaron and I answer 
literally any question under the sun about ongoing events, sexuality, gender, faith, all things. Um, yeah, every Friday at four. So those videos, that. those videos are really great. Um, uh, former guest of the podcast, multiple time former guest of the podcast, Laura Jean Truman has been a part of that, I think in the past. And um, yeah, they're, they're, yeah, yeah, I had, yeah, I had her on, um, I did a, uh, a pride, like all mm. day long Instagram, right, yes. like marathon, like a <laughs> wild human, but I was missing like not being able to go to pride. So I had a bunch of people back to back. I loved Laura Jean Truman. Is it? Yeah. She is a wonder, but yeah, but th- those, th- that's a great resource. Um, yeah. Great theology on Instagram. Um, and it's, it's, it's there as you say. And so, yeah, please folks check that out and, uh, and reach out if you want to know more about the, the cohort and all that kind of work. But, and, and the podcast is, you know, so much of the stuff we've been talking about in terms of pastoral care and narrative, like if you want to see how that's been done, go and listen to, to the podcast, how to be human. So, uh, Rachel, thank you for, for coming on and, uh, yeah. And, and, and chatting to love and repeat today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This is a great space that you have. I appreciate being a part of it. You're welcome.